We are New Life Community Church in Rogers Park. A community church in the city of Chicago, all over the city, for the good of the city. Right now, we are in the midst of our series, Not Alone. A series that focuses on how God created us to live in friendship and community. Wherever you're listening, I hope you are blessed by this message. So an Irish novelist and a French wrestler walk into a bar. When I read that first line of an article this week, I thought I must be getting a setup for a great joke or something like that. But it was no joke. It's actually a true story of an unexpected friendship. The French wrestler is a guy named Andre, and that novelist is a guy named Samuel Beckett. So Samuel Beckett was an Irish novelist and Nobel Prize winner, and in 1953, he moved to Paris. And he bought land there, and he built a house, and he sort of made a life there in his older age, and, and he met some neighbors, and they were good people, and he was surrounded by these pleasant friends and neighbors that he had. And one of them was named Boris, and Boris had a son named Andre. And Andre had an excess of growth hormones. So by the time he was 12 years old, he weighed 250 pounds, he was six foot five or something like that. You know who this is. It's Andre the Giant. And Samuel Beckett became Andre's chauffeur to school. He would drive Andre back and forth to school when he was 12 years old, and this went on for some time. Andre and Beckett became good friends. And perhaps the most unlikely and unexpected friends in history. Friendship is an interesting thing, isn't it? We don't really know what to make of it. What even is friendship? This story helps illustrate how our preferences for friends and friendships can sometimes be um, blown out of the water by friends that we make in life. Sometimes our deepest friendships are not the ones that we would have chosen for ourselves. And yet sometimes we feel like we don't have any true friends at all. I mean, think about the world that we live in right now. Social media and technology, it's connected us to more and more people than ever before in history. And yet, we feel more isolated and alone than ever before. School and work are on Zoom. Conversation and public debate are on Twitter. And keeping up with people that you know or care about even before the pandemic, that mostly only happened through Facebook or checking their Instagram story. And the least we can say about this situation and context is that it makes friendship and relationships confusing. It makes things confusing. We don't know what it means to need friends, choose friends, be a friend, and we need help from God's Word. God's Word, the Bible, the Scriptures that He's given us and revealed Himself through to us, they're a sufficient guide for life and godliness. And I would dare to say that they speak to the details of our lives, even things like friendship. So we're going to look at God's Word today to think about this question. What is biblical friendship? So as you know, we're going through a series right now in New Life 
It's about four or five weeks long, just thinking about relationships and friendships specifically from the Bible. What is friendship? Today, we're going to look at the lives of three people. And I don't have a three-point sermon for you, but I have a three-portrait sermon. We're going to look at three portraits of three different people in one story in the Bible to think about this question. What is friendship? And the story comes from 1 Samuel 18 to 20. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and feel free to open it right here where you are. Even if it's on your phone, you can Google 1 Samuel 18 and it'll pop right up. It is a longer passage, so I'm not going to read all three chapters and then explain them so you can, you know, breathe. I'm going to kind of skip around. It might get a little bit confusing, but hopefully we'll be able to keep up on the screen. And I already told Benjamin, like, if, some, if it doesn't pop up on the screen, it's my fault because I'm going to be reading a lot of verses from this story, but not all the way through. But this story is 1 Samuel 18 to 20. And, you know, later, actually, I was thinking about this. The Apostle Paul Thousands of years later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I have this verse on the screen, he says this about the Old Testament. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction. God has something to say to us, even through these sometimes distant feeling and confusing narratives. So let's dive in and look at three characters in this story to help us build a definition of biblical friendship today. And I definitely am so used to moving around and walking around when I preach, so if I get off camera, sorry about that for you guys, but I'm going to try to stay with you. So the first portrait today, the first character is David. David. We're going to look at a boy named David, and you've heard of him. That's right, it's King David. David was the son of Jesse. He was a young shepherd boy who took a boxed lunch to his brothers on the battlefield, but who stayed longer than he had planned. You see, David had already been anointed king by the prophet Samuel. Saul had disobeyed the Lord. He had rejected God's way. He had given up and relinquished the kingship. And Samuel went and found David and anointed him to be king. But David was young, and it was almost like a down payment. He's already anointed, but he's not yet king. So David stays back at home, tending to the sheep. He continues working for his dad on the farm. But that day when he took the lunch to his brothers, he stayed around. He stayed on the battlefield. He took up his slingshot and he took down the giant that had caused every other Israelite around to cower in fear. He faced off with Goliath and delivered Israel. A nobody shepherd boy just became a somebody hero. And that's where 1 Samuel 17 leaves us. So David is a young guy who's getting a lot of credit. He's getting a lot of responsibility. He's got status. He's got a lot of reasons to flex. I mean, he's got some stuff to post on his social media accounts right now. He's not just tweeting about different types of sheep wool anymore. He's got all kinds of stuff to put on his Instagram, like his harp with the king's throne in the background, you know, because Saul brings him in to be his debut musician. He's got a, a headless giant and a sword, the enemy of Israel that he can pose with. All his friends are back home on the farm, and he's here a battlefield hero. 
And you can see this in 1 Samuel 16 even. 16, 18, David is praised for his music talent. Like I said, in 17, that's where he defeats Goliath. In 18, 2, it says that that's the reason that Saul brought him into the royal service because he was so impressed with David on the battlefield. 18.5 says that David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And again in 18.14, David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. So David is rising to fame and power really quick. And notice this in 18.7. It says that the women lined up on the streets to sing songs about David's war victories. They owed their lives and the lives of their children to this kid who just defeated the icon of the Philistine army. And I'll just read one more. 18.16, the Bible says that all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And that phrase, going out and coming in, that's been used in other places in the Old Testament to refer to this going out to battle and strength, going out to be a victor and coming back in bringing victory, the symbol of protection and safety for the people of the community. The Bible is not making David look bad. It doesn't make him look here like someone who's grasping for power and struggling to get on top. This just kind of happens. Like no one else is picking up the slingshot. David's just there delivering lunch. It's either the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time. But David takes his stand and faces off Goliath. And God is blessing him. He's rising in power and fame, and God is doing this for him. In fact, his success is attributed to the Spirit of the Lord who fell upon David in chapter 16. David can't boast in himself. Every good thing he has or does comes from the grace of God. And now, of course, David's not perfect. The whole book of 2 Samuel is about the downfall of David, his moral failure, the destruction of his family, like all kinds of stuff. I mean, you didn't even know this kind of stuff was in the Bible. It's like a movie. But 1 Samuel is about David's rise to power and fame as the man of God because of God's blessing on his life, because of God's grace. That's the point. David is God's chosen king. The shepherd boy nobody is God's choice. Now let's say that David is your friend. David's your friend and all these wonderful things start to happen to him. How would you respond? That's what this story is actually about. You see, when we talk about friendship in the church, we almost always look at this story, the story of David and Jonathan and their friendship. But this story isn't primarily about David and Jonathan. Not primarily. It's primarily about Saul and Jonathan. It's about two opposite reactions to David's rise to fame. And that's significant for us. Because you see, a friend that makes you look good is an easy friend to have. A friend that stays just a little bit behind you is no threat 
to your ego. But what happens when a friend gets a promotion at work, maybe one that you were interested in? What happens when your neighbor moves into a bigger house? Or what happens when that friend that you grew up with and love and have kept up with now moves away across the country to a bigger career? They have a lot of kids and have a bigger family, more money. What goes on inside you? What goes on in your heart when people you know and love suddenly surpass you in greatness according to social media status standards? Like I said, there's not a lot wrong with David at this point. And of course there is. He's a sinner. But in the narrative, this is God's blessing. Just blessing and lavishing David with a place and a position by His grace. And the question is, how would we respond to that? Saul becomes an anti-friend. Saul becomes a jealous enemy, while Jonathan shows us what a true friend is like. How do you respond when God blesses others, like Saul or like Jonathan? That's the question to keep in mind as we look at the next two portraits. So let's look first at Saul for a few minutes. The second character in the story, Saul. Saul seemed to start off on the right foot. Certainly, he must have been older than David, but I would dare to call him not just David's master, but his friend. When David came into Saul's service, the Bible says in chapter 16, verse 21, that Saul loved him. Then it says that Saul was refreshed and made well as David would play his music in his presence. But something changes. Something happens and Saul loses control. So look at 18 verse 6. This is that story I referred to a minute ago with the women singing praises. I think I've got this one on the screen for you. When David brings safety and deliverance to his people by striking down Goliath, here's what happens. It says, The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was angry. The saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me only thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul becomes the anti-friend. The love that he had for David, it disappears like darkness at dawn. I mean, it is gone. He was angry, displeased, and that phrase that he eyed David means that he was skeptical, paranoid, and on the watch like a hunter. Envy and jealousy win in Saul's heart. He hated hearing the women praising David, Ten times more than they were praising him. And Saul's focus in life becomes tiny that day. His life narrows and shrivels. Keeping an eye on David becomes his only mission. And the rest of 1 Samuel is literally just the story of David's continued loyalty to Saul as much as he could, even though Saul is hunting him like a wild animal 
trying to kill him. Listen to 18, verses 10 and 11. It says, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the harp as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped twice. That spear is a hint that we're supposed to connect Saul back to Goliath. Saul is becoming the new Goliath, the new Egyptian Pharaoh, the new Cyrus of Persia, the new exiler, the new enemy of David and through David of Israel. David learns that he's not just facing off with a Philistine giant, but an Israelite giant, his friend, his master, who brought him into his family, into his service, turns on him. In 1817, in the paragraphs that follow there, Saul plots to trip David up by getting his other family members involved. So Saul tries to get David to marry his own daughter so that David would get preoccupied with wedding planning and things like that and die in battle because he's not focused. Now, it didn't go well for Saul. David was humble. He said, I'm not worthy to marry into a king's family. So it didn't work. And then Saul offers his second daughter. She apparently liked David. And they made it work. So then they get married. And the text emphasizes that this happened twice. And the details of the text are important because the author says it happened a second time. We're supposed to think, wow, Saul's really obsessed. Saul's life is shriveling up to a tiny little focus. Revenge on David. In the summary statement in 1829, So Saul was David's enemy continually. It's where the narrator leaves us there. And then things just keep going downhill. I mean, Saul tries to get Jonathan involved. And Jonathan says that David's done nothing wrong. And he actually convinces Saul, you know, don't kill him, don't harm him, don't hurt him, bring him back into your presence. Feed him at your table again. He's done nothing wrong against you. And Saul seems to agree, so he invites David back. They have some good dinner, some good conversation. And then Saul freaks out again and tries to kill David again with his spear. So Saul has some seriously confusing mood swings. This is no joke. Again, you probably didn't even know this stuff was in the Bible. A couple verses I chose not to even read. (laughs) The key to the madness, though, is in chapter 20, verse 31. When Saul tries to convince Jonathan that David needs to go, here's what he says. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. That's the motive for Saul's murder. That's why he becomes the anti-friend, the enemy His passion and priority is his own name and kingdom. And I'm sorry to break it to you. And I'm breaking it to myself too. But we are more like Saul than we wish to admit. Our relationships, our friendships, they are smeared with comparisons, envy, jealousy, and ambition to build our own kingdoms. 
And it's not hard to see. Like I said, social media doesn't help. I mean, we're isolated and alone, and the only ways that we connect with some of our friends is by seeing the very best things in their life posted in photos and statuses, the best news, the greatest pleasures. And it breeds a shallow view of friendship. I mean, my friends are simply the people that either boost my status or make me sad and angry because my life isn't measuring up. And maybe murder isn't on your mind, so you distance yourself from Saul. You pull back and you say, you know, that's, that guy's crazy. That's not me. But what does Jesus say? In Matthew 5, 21, Jesus is preaching on the mount. And he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And James, James 4, 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and argue. It begins in the heart. Saul's hatred led to actual murder attempts, but the heart that got him to that place is not a lot different than the heart that we see in ourselves sometimes. And if you want a biblical definition of friendship, you have to start with the bad news. This is the story. This is the context for David and Jonathan, the part that we usually skip over. But to answer our question, what is friendship? We have to start with what it isn't. Saul was no friend to David. And I want you to watch for how the same tendencies can creep up in your relationships as well. And they're usually not to this kind of magnitude. They're subtle, subtle things like selfishness or self-protection that keep us enclosed and pulled back from giving ourselves and love to our friends. But there is a third portrait. There's a third character, and there's a world of good news in this story. So let's look at the third character. Let's look at Jonathan. What happens in Jonathan's heart when David rises to fame and power? Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. Saul and David are talking. Saul's like, come on in, you know, come into the royal service, defeat Goliath. And in verse 1 of chapter 18, it says, As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off his outer coat that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan was the son of the king. He had every right to expect that one day he would be king. He would be the most praised man of all. I'm sure that he was on the battlefield with David. I mean, these are like blood brothers from the army. They're tight. And Jonathan could have become like Saul in response to David's rise. The paranoia and fear and sense of a threat. But instead, 
Jonathan becomes David's friend. Jonathan loved David as himself. It makes us think of Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. Perhaps Jesus was reflecting on the life of Jonathan when he said that. Jonathan made a covenant with David. Now, covenant is something that we don't really understand. I mean, we have covenants today in marriage relationships. Um, We don't really have a formal covenant or something like that for friendships. But the covenant simply means loyalty and commitment. It means that they're bound in a relationship of mutual protection and loyalty. When people would make a covenant back then, it was usually between a king and a subject. The king says, I'll protect you and you serve me. And the subject says, great, I'll serve you if you protect me. I mean, it's like a mutual beneficiary kind of agreement. But here it's between two friends who are on equal playing fields. And I think it's just pointing out that they are bound in loyalty to each other's good. They've been to war together. They know each other. And Jonathan commits to seeking David's good even though David is the one who's coming back from that same war being praised. Jonathan starts giving David gifts. He gives him his coat, armor, sword, bow, and belt. And what's the significance of that? Jonathan is basically giving David his inheritance. He's giving David everything he has that indicates that he is the king, the royal warrior leader, Jonathan is humbly relinquishing all of that. His position, his title, and he's offering them to David. I'm sure David had his own belt and coat and armor. Of course, he didn't wear Saul's armor when he went to defeat Goliath. All he had was a slingshot, so maybe he didn't. But the point is that these are not just random articles of wardrobe here. These are status symbols. I mean, this is like the police chief giving over his badge and gun specifically to the new officer. Like this is not just random stuff. Jonathan knows that David is God's anointed king and he is humble enough to give himself over to God's plan, free from envy, to be a servant and a friend to David. And as the story unfolds, Saul pursues David. Jonathan remains loyal by protecting him along the way and referring back to that covenant. And chapter 20, verse 23 sums it up. It says, The Lord is between you and me forever. How do you respond when your neighbor or peer or friend rises and surpasses you? How do you respond when God blesses them with good? Do you become the anti-friend? Even if it's in secret and they don't know it, it's just in your heart. Do you become embittered with envy and disappointment? Or do you look more like Jonathan? Are your relationships free and full of self-sacrifice, goodness, and kindness? Christ came to build his church and make relationships and friendships in his church look more like Jonathan than like Saul. 
His cross actually purchased a reconciled community of people, reconciled to God and to one another, free from boundary markers and, and, and distinctions of status, free from sin and guilt and shame, cleansed by the blood of His cross. So as we come back to that question, what is friendship? I think there's just a couple things that stand out to me from this story. Love and loyalty. It's pretty easy to remember. What is friendship? It's a relationship built around love and loyalty. I mean, Jonathan loved David as himself. He sacrificed himself to protect David. He gave up his ambition, worldly status, wealth, kingdom, and joyfully submitted himself to God's will to bless David. A good friend takes pleasure in the good of the other friend, not just their own good. There's no hint here of jealousy or envy or selfishness. There's no comparison. There's a joy in the good of the other. Jonathan was satisfied in God's blessing of David. And a heart of love. And loyalty is just a commitment to keep things that way over the long haul. So biblical friendship is modeled by love and loyalty. And I think Proverbs, they bring the same clarity. Proverbs 18.24 says, There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 27.10 says, Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. Right there, love and loyalty, sticking close and over the long haul. And I would just add one third ingredient from Jesus. On the night before Jesus went to the cross, he called his disciples his friends. You heard it this morning from Anna? John 15, 15, Jesus says to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Friendship involves openness. That's the third ingredient. Love, loyalty, and openness. The servant doesn't know his master's thoughts. But Jesus called his disciples friends because he brought them in to the inside. He shared with them the things of God the Father. He invited them to a meal in that upper room. They were close and open to him, so they were his friends. And it isn't just a general openness, though it certainly can include that in daily life, but specifically an openness to the things of God. Friends share with each other in the things of the Father. Loyalty, love, and openness to the things of God together. That's a biblical friendship. And I know this all probably sounds difficult for you to imagine for your own life on Monday morning, Chicago. <laughs> I mean, I was studying this passage. I was getting into it. I was reading it. Probably read it before. I know I've read it before. A couple times, I'm sure. But just noticing all these things, and it was so exciting. And then I paused, and I was like, what do I do now? What do I do differently? How do I look more like Jonathan than like Saul? 
And maybe what's running through your head is that you don't really have any friends at all right now. Maybe you're new to the community. Maybe you've been here 20 years, but have never been able to open up to someone like this. And as a disciple of Jesus, I want you to know that he calls you his friend. And that's not insignificant, trite, or cliche. Because it only happens there, as far as I know, in John. The night before he dies. What did he want to say to you, his disciple? He wanted to say, I call you friends. That's comfort for you this morning. But he also left us with something called the church. This right here, the gathering, a place for relationships to grow. And it doesn't happen fast. But if you think about ways to practice love and loyalty towards others in the church, I'm confident that you will start developing friendships right here and perhaps unexpected ones you would never have imagined for yourself multi-generational friendships. Friendships between 20-year-olds and 60-year-olds. Friendships between people of different races and backgrounds. Friendships between wealthy and poor. I mean, we are in a diverse neighborhood. You probably wouldn't have come into this place expecting to have such a unique cast of friends. But I can tell you from personal experience, even though it can make things harder, perhaps more complicated, and maybe not as easy or comforting as friendships you had when you were a kid, when everyone was your same grade. I mean, I was thinking about that. Like when I was in school, your friends were in your grade. You didn't have friends who were a grade older or a grade younger, not where I came from at least. I mean, that was weird. They're like too old or too young. But it doesn't have to be the case. A unique cast of friendships are right here in the church. Even though they take work and they might not be easy to come by, they're available as you start to practice these things. Or you may think, I do have a few friends, but how do I have this love and loyalty and and openness that you're talking about? And I would just say there's freedom to be creative here. I mean, think about those friends that you have. What are some ways that you can practice more love towards them or more loyalty towards them? Maybe it just means calling them this week and checking in. You haven't talked to them in a few weeks. You haven't seen them in a while. Just call them. Let them know you care about them. You were thinking about them, praying for them. What about loyalty? Like I said, in our culture, we don't have covenant friendships. I mean, what is that? Like, I mean, I guess, you know, blood brother type stuff or... um, Hmm. I don't know, like giving, giving your friend when you're a kid like a ring pop. I don't know. There could be different ceremonies that we do. But for the most part, we don't have that. <laughs> but I think that friendships do have this assumed covenant kind of structure. Like, you know your friends, and they know you. You know that you're each other's friend, usually. And, and if it's a, a long-standing friendship, there's this expectation of loyalty. So maybe it just means making that a little bit more explicit. When you talk to them, when you see them, let them know, know, hey, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to this friendship. Or maybe it won't even involve words. Maybe it'll just involve doing something for them, like picking up groceries when they're sick 
or have a baby or something like that. Or when they're sick, you cook them a meal and take it to them. Could mean a number of things. There's a thousand ways to grow in godliness as we practice these biblical principles. And what about openness? That third ingredient. I would just say that thankfully the church kind of already has built in a structure for openness to happen as you get involved. So things like the prayer line, the morning prayer line where you call in and talk to people and get to know people who call in regularly and share life together through that 30-minute call, or things like small groups where you might spend an hour or two hours getting to know people in a, in a home group, sharing life together, sharing food together, sharing stories together, sharing in the Bible together, sharing in prayer together, or just mingling and chatting after Sunday service. Socially distanced, of course. There's lots of ways that you can fellowship with each other over the things of God. So don't overthink it. Simply think of small ways that you can implement these three things into the relationships you already have or take some new steps, some bold steps to trying them out with friendships that you don't yet have. But the most important thing, I would argue of every sermon, is to bring it back around the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't just read these stories in the Old Testament to get some good examples for life, like how to be better, how to do better, how to become a better person, a better friend. So I want to end with Jesus. The most important thing is that all our talk about friendship must drive us to the cross. Jesus came to die on the cross to remove our sins, forgive us, wash us, cleanse us, and reconcile us to God and each other. And he has paved the way for real friendship to exist. By his death and resurrection, he has beaten death and paid for our sin so that we can be eternal friends with God. It's a whole new way of thinking about the gospel story. The good news is that God has made you his friend by removing the barrier of your sin through Jesus Christ on the cross. And God has made us a community of friends, family members, people indwelt by the Spirit of God through his cross. Only by his death and resurrection for us are we free to be eternally friends with God and each other? And that's hope in the midst of suffering. You might just have grief this morning, sadness, disappointment over broken friendships, things I'm talking about, bringing stuff like that up from your past or present, or just sadness and loneliness from not having close friends. I want to tell you there's hope this morning that God has made us eternally friends with him and with each other. And no matter how lonely I feel in this world, as I grieve that, I know that the friends from my past that I've lost, the friends that have moved away, that I grieve over, I will be reunited with in glory, in the new creation. And our friendship will never end. It will never be divided again.
by suffering, pain, sin, or just moving away and having distance. God has made us eternally friends with him and with each other. And it's only by the death and resurrection of Jesus that we're free to be a new covenant community. You have been listening to New Life Community Church in Rogers Park. If you have been blessed by this message, please let us know. Now go and live a new life.